Alright guys, this is the Sound of Salvation podcast, and today we're going to be talking about the atonement. This is my first podcast, and this is my first topic and idea I wanted to talk about, and I think it's pretty much the most important to talk about and get the grounds for into coming future episodes that I do on different things, so this is the most important, and atonement is the gospel and the gospel is the good news and i want to lay that out there for everyone so that they know how it's carried about how it was accomplished how jesus christ paid for our sins and so i want to break it down from why we need salvation why we need to be saved into our purchased and promised hope that lies within us and into the future of our promised possession of our inheritance that we will have at the second coming of Christ. So we're placing in three different categories here. Why we need to be saved, how we are saved, and what is to come from our salvation. Is it finished in the sense that there's no more to come or is there more to come for us mortal humans? So let's start it off, um, the atonement. The means of becoming redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all sins. Based on the natural man who is inherently sinful and turns away from all just authority, he cannot be justified by the giver of life in whom all love abounds. So life and love, they're compatible with each other. God who loved us gave us life. He started the human race. He started man and lived with man and loved man. So we can't possibly be justified on our own grounds by works when we are inherently sinful. We are not inherently sinful because God made us inherently sinful. God made us perfect. And we'll go over that uh, a little later here. But based on natural man who is inherently sinful and turns away from all authority, he cannot be justified by God. So God who is just, he has the two qualities of his justice, which is holiness. Two main attributes of that holiness is his love and his wrath. And that wrath must be inflicted upon all who takes part in wickedness, that is rebellion against him and his perfect plan for creation. And that perfect plan is the restoration from the force of sin. People rebel against God and that wrath must be carried out because he is creator and Lord of all. God must punish all unrighteousness because he is holy and sin is what his nature is not. It's the complete antithesis of God and goes against his perfect plan. So the eradication of evil and sin is what he is caring about right now in the process of redemption. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art to pure eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. This is strongly suggesting, right? It's strongly applying that God hates evil. He hates iniquity and sin and filth and wrongdoing and injustice because that is what he is not and that is what brings his creation, his perfect creation initially, brings that creation to sin and rebel against him and then to experience the effects of death. And so one cannot experience eternal life because they have that sinful, dead nature within them. Eternal life is only eternal through the eternal life giver and his presence, just his presence, is too awesome for mortal men to even look upon and live. So how can men live forever with him if he cannot have anything unclean be a part 
of him or abide in him. It is not a possibility. So once we die, we cannot forever experience his presence because we are an unclean thing. Okay, God is three times holy. Holy, holy, holy. That's three times for the triune nature of God. And natural man is dead in sin and incapable of achieving the state of relationship with God because they do not love God, nor do they seek God as God. Romans 3.11 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that un understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, which is an open grave. It's dead. And their tongues, and with their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away so our iniquities our sin has taken us away from the perfect plan that god has for creation and so he is restoring creation he will eventually restore it completely in perfection to the way it was in eden but to do that and for us to be a part of that plan of restoration we must be saved from our sin and we cannot do that by ourselves as you're hearing in these verses even our righteousness is as filthy rags that is very strong even the good things we do we do in our sinful nature that god looks upon and says that is not true love that is selfishness and self-centeredness that does not glorify me it glorifies man and the glorification of man is satan's plan it is against god's plan so there is not one thing we can do to obtain salvation and all of fallen creation is headed to reside in hell that was initially prepared for the devil and his angels revelation 21 8 says but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death so we see here that all these people with these attributes which we all have all liars if you've told one liar a liar if you've looked upon a woman or a man with lust you are a adulterer whoremongers murderers if you've hated a neighbor you're a murderer in your heart christ says he has laid out the law as a mirror for us to reflect upon our nature and our inability to do good our inability to save ourselves based on the merits of the law so if anyone has has broken any of the law we've become guilty in god's sight and we are condemned john 3:18 says he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to that light lest his deeds should be reproved why is he already condemned because christ the light of the world has come into the world and has shown himself by the means of the gospel in which i tell you right now and men hear that and see that light but do not come to that light because they hate that light 
because if they came to that light, their deeds, their evil would be corrected. They would be convicted and they do not love good. They love their evil and their lust. So the unbeliever is already condemned. So because of which they need a substitute to take upon their sentence. They don't need an ad advocate. An advocate is one that says, but judge, look at look at this man's good things they've done. Look at all this, trying to justify their position based on their works, based on what they've done or what they have not done. But that man is already condemned. It's not necessary for an advocate to be implemented. It's useless. It's in vain. A substitute is necessary because that substitute must take their guilt upon itself as a substitute. And I'll explain that in a little bit here. But in generality, an advocate is not necessary because that person is already condemned. Jesus is the light of the world and the light of men. For whosoever following that light will be saved. So Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The law was reveal revealed, okay, the law of sin and death here. Remember, I, I talked about the mirror. It's a mirror. The law was revealed to the Jews, not as something new, but as an authoritative material for the purpose of setting them apart for the rest of the nations and instituted as a moral law already known by the law written on the heart via the conscience. That, that is what the heart is. It is the conscience, the law written on the heart. By this law, they were required to participate in yearly sacrifices done for them by the high priest. So because they realized their sin, they knew that they needed atonement for their sin. And so in the Old Testament, they would have a high priest who would do the high priestly duties this was done as a shadow of things to come by Jesus the high priest who would be the ultimate sacrifice as the God-man. So the sacrifice done by the high priest was taking a goat or a lamb without blemish, without any defect, under a year old male and laying upon that animal the sins of the people and killing it. And so by that, that's a shadow of Christ who died in our stead for our sins. So by that, God was the God-man, becoming the mediator between God and man, made possible by his human and divine nature and his finished work on the cross. So because me and you needed a substitute for our sin because we could not pay our wages, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So because we could not pay that sin debt, Christ came along and paid it for us by taking our duly earned wages, putting it upon himself, and nailed it to the cross with him. So that provided the means of redemption. Isaiah 43 says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. No one else can save but God alone. He provides the sacrifice. In Genesis with Abraham, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar. And long story short, as Abraham was going to kill his son because the Lord commanded so. An angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from doing so and said, no, I have provided the substitute for Isaac. It was a ram caught in a thicket in a bush, in a thistly, thorny bush. That is Jesus who bore the crown of thorns 
and died in our place, in Isaac's place. And Abraham named that place. Not the Lord has provided, but the Lord will provide. Over a thousand years later, the Lord provided the perfect substitute of Jesus Christ. So the atonement, because the sinner is already condemned, an advocate is useless. The man must be offered something that is not of himself, but is something external. This must be a substitutionary exchange between the criminal and something that is worthy of that substitution. Colossians 2, 12 through 14 says, blotting out the hand, writing of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Jesus became the justifier for them that believe in Jesus took the penalty of spiritual death when he took the cup and was put to death. He said, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In those moments when Christ suffered and died and was dying on the cross, he said, he said those words, why have you forsaken me? The love of the Father forsake the Son and it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. And in those moments, Jesus experienced the eternal wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. Because our due penalty, right? The wages of sin is death. Our due penalty is eternal, eternal damnation, the wrath of God. But Christ took upon the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. Think about that. How is that possible? How is that possible if any other being could take upon the eternal wrath of God for the whole world? Just for a second, think about that. It's not possible. Christ, the Son of God, the Word became flesh. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Christ, eternal God, took upon the wrath of God for us. And then he cried out as he gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. Those were his last words. Right before he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, but those were his last words. And the Greek word for that is telestii. And that is synonymous for paying a debt. And Christ said, it is finished. The debt, in other words, the debt had been paid. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Beautiful how God loves us that much that he would die for us. An innocent person cannot assume the guilt of the guilty unless there is an initiated union between the two, a sense of corporate oneness. In this case, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we become of him, in him, abide in him and him in us. So Galatians 2.20 says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's saying we become a part of him who is God. We become partakers of the divine nature that one day we will become fully a part of him. Ephesians 5:30 says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. 
Romans 7, 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So we're dead to the law that we have broken, that we are condemned by. So that condemnation is no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we are alive by Christ in Christ. Beautiful. Okay. For this oneness to, to, uh, to occur, one must be born again, which means to be born of the Spirit, received a quickened, alive, or revived, but we were born in shape and iniquity. But the Spirit and the Word must come together, conceive in us a spiritual, alive nature that is to be born again. And I'll talk about that a little later. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The will of God, not the will of blood, flesh, or man. That which born is of the flesh is flesh, and that which born is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus says in John 3 that one must be born of water and spirit. And if one is not born again, they cannot be saved or inherit the eternal life because they are not made a new creature. So if you're saying, oh, I'm hearing water here, that must be, mean physical water baptism. No, no, it's not. He says of the spirit and of water as in connection with each other. And it, it is closely, closely connected with each other to be born again. It is not of ourselves, it's of God. Being baptized by water is a work that we do. So that is not necessarily, that is not of God. That is of ourselves. That is a work that we do. So the water must symbolize the word. In Ephesians 5, 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it, talking about the church, with the washing of water by the word. The word, therefore, is a message heard by the one listening. Person is initially, um, initially Jesus. It's, it's the gospel. It's about Jesus and centered around the finished work of Jesus, who became flesh. So, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So you see here the word, the faith, which comes by hearing, and now we have the spirit. The spirit is. The Holy Spirit who wields the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So those two are in connection with each other and are in close relationship with each other. And one must believe and be given the faith of Christ. And along with that, we are conceived in us a new spiritual alive nature in which he makes us new. Okay, we'll go into that a little more in depth here in the future. Now we have the resurrection. What is what is the death without the resurrection? It is not a thing. It is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, If Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain and our faith is also vain. So the resurrection is the focal point of his claims to deity. And if he is not deity, then he was not sinless. And therefore, not the perfect sacrifice that would not atone for the sins of the world. In fact, God would not even use him. He would have been a false messiah and an imposter. 
But because he has risen, we have the good news, which is the gospel. Because of the empty tomb and the risen Jesus in bodily, physical form that appeared to the cowardly disciples who did not even believe at first until they saw him physically in his resurrected state. They eventually died and became martyrs for their claim, their undeniable faith that they had seen the risen Jesus and that they were doing something not for themselves, but for the kingdom of heaven. And over 500 other eyewitnesses saw the risen Jesus, and Christianity spread like a wildfire to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said it would. It was a religion, it was called the Way, and the Roman government did not like it, and the Pharisees and the religious rulers of Judaism hated it, and those people who trusted in Christ as their savior were often killed, martyred, and executed, but because they were given invaluable, undeniable proof that what they believed was true. They died for this cause. So the resurrection, what is it? The resurrection is the promise of the faith. Right now we struggle with a sinful world and our flesh and that is inherited from our father and our father after his father and his father after his father, all the way down to Adam who sinned against God and started the cycle of sin and death. That is impossible to avoid so we as christians right we struggle with that sin but we also have a spiritual alive nature of the will of god that resides in us by the holy spirit so it's a struggle flesh and spirit are in constant conflict with each other without the resurrection we will die and remain defeated by the grave and the mark of physical death we are spiritually alive but physically dead one day we will be spiritually alive and physically alive, right? Our physical deadness is talking about our future physical deadness as unbelievers, one who is not born of water and spirits, born again. They are dead spiritually. They are dying in their soul, being corroded by the awful, sinful wickedness that they fill in their mind with, with on a daily basis. So they are being degraded in their soul, which is the intermediate relational element between body and spirit, and their physical body will eventually ultimately die. That is inevitable. It will happen to all of us because sin equals death. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake, for your sake, because without that realization of pain and suffering, we would ultimately be happy in our sin and one day experience the second death. And God gave us that real realization of sin by pain. And by that pain, we can know that we have an infection internally in our spirit and turn to Jesus. So one day we'll be physically alive by the resurrection and spiritually alive. We are spiritually alive right now, but that is pointing towards our physical resurrection into incorruptible and immortality. One day the mortal will put on immortality and will be able to finally sing, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So the incorruptible must put on incorruption, that is the dead. The dead in Christ will rise first, and the mortal or the alive during the last trumpet sound when the rapture happens, the alive 
will put on immortality. The mortal will become immortal and they'll be able to sing, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? They will never experience physical death. We will become like him when we see him in a glorified state and physical state. Without the resurrection, we will ultimately be defeated by death and our faith in vain. So because Christ is risen, he has also ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ's work is twofold. He died as the sin offering for sin and then rose from the dead and ascended through the veil of the cloud into the holy of holies of the heavenly tabernacle and offered his own blood as the atonement for the sin of the world. Let's just take a moment right now and apply the high priestly work of the Old Testament Levites and use them to typify the work that Christ did as our high priest. So when Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly glory, he set aside his garments of glory and beauty and put on the linen garment of humanity in which to minister and in which to offer the sacrifice. In the same way, the high priests of the Jews would set aside their garments of glory and beauty, offer the sacrifice, and then offer that sin offering to be accepted by God. And then in doing so after that, would put back on their garments of glory and beauty. So just as that happened, Christ emptied himself of his glorified state with the Father, put on the flesh of humanity, the God-man, in which he, although he did not have any occasion to offer a sin offering for himself, for he was sinless, but he had the responsibility by the Father to offer a sin offering for the whole world. It is here we see that no single offering could typify the work of Christ, for his work is twofold. He died as a sin offering for sin, then rose from the dead and ascended through the veil of cloud into the Holy of Holies of the heavenly tabernacle where he put on his garments of glory and beauty once again to sit at the right hand of the Father in glory and beauty. This could also be symbolized by the two goats that would die. The first would die as the sacrifice, and the second would be called the scapegoat who bore the sins and went into the wilderness. So just as Jesus died, he also needed to take away those sins and bore them to the Holy of Holies and presented them as a sin offering in the heavenly tabernacle to the Father. Just as the goat took away the sins, of the people and went away Christ went away and just as he went away he sent to us as a believer the comforter that is the Holy Spirit seal of our redemption so Christ is our high priest therefore Christ the high priest is our advocate for all who are part of his body right when we're condemned we don't need an advocate but now that we're justified we still sin and we battle with our sinful nature and our spiritually alive nature which is the nature of Christ in us we need an advocate for when we sin, for there is no condemnation in Christ because he intercedes on behalf of the believer due to his priestly role on the right hand of the Father. I think about it this way, when, whenever we sin, Christ is there to intercede and say, his sin has been bought and paid for by my blood. He is innocent. For when a believer commits sin, Christ is our advocate through our position with his righteousness sealed by the Holy Spirit. To wrap it up here, Hebrews 5.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. So God 
sympathizes with us, we know God loves us because God is love. He loves even the wicked, and he wants the wicked to turn to him to be saved. But he understands us in our battle with sin, in our battle with pain and suffering on a daily basis because he feels our infirmities. He was touched with the same thing we are touched by, yet he was without sin. What an awesome God we have, an awesome high priest we have, that he came and died for us as a sinless lamb. Conclusion of this is the gospel, is Christ is the good news. The narrative of the Bible fully encapsulates the Messiah into two advents. The first has been accomplished for our hope by the promise fulfilled at his first coming. We now have the blessed hope that one day when we see him, we will be like him. Because he was resurrected and defeated death, we will be resurrected and defeat death by his power, the power of God in us. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, that same power lives within us. That is a beautiful, powerful thing that we can know. Now we await his second coming to the praise of his glory for our coming redemption into perfection. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also ye that believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit promise. We first believe and we receive the faith of Jesus Christ, one that does not wither or fade. It is eternal and it's steadfast and we will be like him when we see him we, we are purchased that's what was done on the cross it is finished the debt has been paid he has purchased the possession unto the praise of his glory that is the gospel that i want to share with you guys i'm going to continue talking about this in future episodes but i'm blessed to do this because i'm really passionate about it and i really love jesus if you did not know already i'm excited to get going with this and come out with more content until next time, God bless you guys.